Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Ido Rock, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Bruno Masayas, a former Europe Minister of Portugal and contributor to the New Statesman about the war in Ukraine and the possible outcomes and where it may lead. Bruno, thank you very much for being here this morning. Should we start out with your article that... Uh, that was published in, I think, last week's edition of The New Statesman. You wrote that so many people who, who thought they knew Russia, that they understood Russia, got, got, this, got this wrong because they thought, thought that this invasion wouldn't happen because they, they thought they knew Putin as someone who was calculating, who was cautious, who, who did take risks, but only when he was pretty certain of victory. And, and obviously, they got, it, they got it pretty wrong. Why do you think that was? People had been building a, an image of, of Putin over the years, of course, and it is true that his behavior has changed. I don't think it changed as dramatically as some people argue. I think uh, if we go back to the Syria invasion in 2015, we see a lot of the same patterns that we're seeing now. But clearly an image of Putin was built and a whole even philosophy of global affairs and of how Putin reacts to different incentives was developed. You remember that since uh, 2014, we had a lot about hybrid war, about information war, about how the Kremlin was an expert in these kind of activities in the dark art behind the curtain. And, and from that framework, it was very difficult to jump to the idea that um, Kremlin and Putin would engage in this uh, brazen uh, adventure rehearsed in the open with all the warnings from American intelligence. It seemed to go against character. That e explains it, I think, to a great extent. Uh, obviously, what I try to do in the, ar in the article is to show that it's very possible to read those events in the past rather than as a psychological determinant, as simply uh, a long-term plan which I don't think is necessarily conscious or deliberate stage by stage, but simply 20 years during which Putin tested his limits and everyone else's limits. And, and since he could keep pushing, 
He just did up until now. He was too weak and too constrained in the past. And last month or two months ago, he concluded he wasn't anymore. Of course, the question now is whether he was wrong or not. Yeah, and I suppose one of the, probably the main reason that that people thought that this wasn't going to happen is because, honestly, for, from the perspective of Russian interests, from the perspective of, of Russia's own capabilities of its... Of, it, of the interests of it, of its people, this invasion makes no sense. It's incredibly costly. It was always going to be costly to invade a country that's between a third and a quarter the size of Russia, whose population is incredibly hostile to, to Russia, as we've seen, which always said it was ready to to take arms and defend quite viciously against against an invasion. And, and that, that is exactly what we've seen, despite the, the Russian army's nominal superiority. And I think it, without being delusional and without saying, you know, that the Ukrainians are, are completely defeating the Russians on the battlefield, which is not what we're seeing in part because of the brutal tactics that Russia has used. It is true that this hasn't been perhaps the walk in the park that some of the Russians' generals and, and leadership may have expected and probably soldiers also. How does this seem to be going for the Russians and, and what do they seem to have got wrong or, or right in, in their in their assumptions. They certainly got a lot of things wrong. The question is, would Putin make the same decision if he was making it today in light of what he knows now? And I'm not sure that he would have a different decision. I think the costs are much higher than he predicted, but they may still be within what he considers acceptable. The main mistake, I think, in conversations in Moscow, sometimes with people close to the Kremlin over the past few years, it was very clear the image they had of what was going on in Ukraine was completely a parallel reality and disconnected from, from reality on the ground. You'd hear from very intelligent, well-informed and even credible scholars argue that everyone in Ukraine would, would like to be a part of Russia, but they were controlled by this Western cabal and so on, which I always found extraordinary because it was clear after a while that this wasn't just propaganda. There was a, a genuine belief in these sort of things. And I'm sure Putin made similar mistakes. But you have to remember, he has never shown any predilection for clear solutions. Uh, he has always liked messy outcomes. He seems to do well in those. After all, what's happened in Syria, there hasn't been any kind of the normal situation continues extremely unstable, extremely messy, he's reached some kind of provisional arrangement with Turkey in parts of Syria. Idlib continues to stand. He hasn't been able to support Assad in his drive to control the whole country. But Russia, its businessmen, its mercenaries, its security, state interests, and so on, seem to do well in these kind of outcomes. So I'd like to keep in mind that something similar may maybe in the plan for Ukraine. And if Putin within a few weeks is in control of large sections of Ukrainian territory, he may think he's in a strong position at the negotiation table. He may even think that he may force the European Union and the United States to remove some of the sanctions as he, they work towards a tentative settlement and he would be in control during that process. So I still unconvinced that this is the catastrophe that everyone announces for Putin himself. It is certainly for Russian, for the common Russia, the Russian on the street and large parts of the population. And what are we seeing in terms of how this is affecting Putin's own position 
domestically. Obviously, the economy of Russia is about to take a very big hit. I've seen that JP Morgan is estimating a fall of, of 7% uh, of GDP, I think, this year, 35% this quarter, which is huge and probably comparable with previous economic shocks in, in the 1990s, which, as we know, uh, were a big factor behind Putin coming to power and consolidating power initially. How does this look to be affecting Putin's position. And, and is there any chance that domestic instability and the economic costs of, of this war would cause him to back down? And the economic and costs on the battlefield of, of this war, which by any account is huge, we don't have a, really that much reliable information, but it's certain that Russian casualties are in the, are in the thousands at this point. They're losing a lot of equipment. Will, will he back down or is he going to, to take this to the end, escalating to get victory at any cost? Well, he's, he's always shown an interest in a kind of grand bargain to be obtained at, at the negotiating table. He just, uh, it was very clear in that publicly broadcast meeting of the Security Council. It's very clear that uh, he and the people around him were frustrated that their position was not strong enough during the negotiations. Uh, and this is a form to gain leverage or even more than leverage to, to be in control of the process. So I expect that particularly if things continue to go badly for the Russian forces in Ukraine, that he will try some desperate moves to gain control over two or three cities and then turn to the negotiations. Um, he's not trying to territorially control the whole of Ukraine. So what happens in Russia is important, but only to some extent. It's a question of time. Obviously, within years, it will be a much weakened Russia, but Putin thinks that by then you will be able to change the terms of the discussion once again, using force. And public, list, public discontent, I feel pretty confident, will mostly be blamed on the West. And people will be blaming United States, NATO, Europe for the problems at home rather than Putin. And, and what kind of, you, you mentioned diplomatic outcomes there. What kind of outcomes do you think we could see Russia striving for or Ukraine potentially accepting or the West acquiescing to in, in some way from this? It's very obvious to me that Russia would not be interested in a kind of formal commitment on paper. They don't think that's enough. So they'll be interested in a settlement that guarantees once and for all that Ukraine cannot really exist as a functioning successful state. And that could take the form of trying to impose a puppet government in Kiev or potentially, as I believe more and more people are, are starting to suspect, he may have in mind a kind of partition of the country similar to the two Germanys or the two Koreas during the, the Cold War. And that's certainly a way to weaken Ukraine decisively. Russia would be in control of a large section in the east, including Kiev, and perhaps that would be a free Ukraine, but very small, very diminished. And obviously also leaving forever in the shadow of that partition. It's just a scenario, but certainly there will be the attempt to have a military presence in Ukraine in some form, either supporting a puppet government or in some Moscow-aligned state. Parts may be next permanently and become part of the Russian Federation. That's certainly what, what Putin has in mind, an outcome of that sort and not simply a piece of paper. And on the Ukrainian side, is it? conceivable that they would accept, I don't know, for example, 
the recognition of, of Crimea as Russian and accepting in some way that Donetsk and, and Luhansk are lost to, to Russia, either to Russia directly or to their, to their proxies, which Russia has now recognized? Or is there any outcome which you see a Ukrainian uh, government accepting even under extreme duress? No, the answer to that is no. Obviously, that's what they will tell you, that they will never accept even the annexation of Crimea. But as you say, and this is not easy for a commentator to, to talk about, and it's up to Ukrainians and Ukrainian authorities, but we do have to be prepared for a few weeks of, as you said at the beginning, um, brutality, retaliation against some of the cities that will be massacred from the air, from artillery that is now surrounded. And at that point, uh, circumstances may change to some extent. And, and some people in Ukraine may think that the priority now is to save civilian lives. And in the future, weakened as Russia is, and the regime may be on the way out within five, 10 years, that there will be another time to fight. I don't, this is not what you hear from people in Kiev, but if you want to be coldly analytical about it, we'll have to talk again in a month and, and see how the circumstances have evolved. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It seems 
quite obvious that part of what Russia is doing by bombarding uh, cities like Mariupol or Kharkiv is signaling to the cities which have not yet come under sustained, like Kiev and Odessa, that this is what awaits them if they don't surrender. Now, clearly the Ukrainians are in no mood for that, but it is true that would, if Russia continues on its current path of escalating bombings and making them increasingly indiscriminate, increasingly not caring whether they're civilian or military targets, thousands more people are going to die. And, and these beautiful cities are going to be severely damaged or in the absolute worst case scenario, if they continue to resist, raised to the ground. What, I, I know you, you probably don't want to give lessons to Ukrainians on what they should think and how they should behave, but what do you make of this argument? Perhaps it is better to surrender and to save some of, to save thousands of lives. Right now, I, I feel confident that not only Ukrainian authorities, but Ukrainian public opinion would, would say that uh, they have to fight and they don't trust Putin to even hold to any kind of settlement that would be reached or any kind of agreement. Also, there's a lot of confidence now that, in fact, that intimidatory power that Russia had, it's disappeared. For many years, Ukraine was extremely cautious not to provoke Russia in the East, but now they're realizing that they can win some battles. So I'm not excluding that there will be a national feeling of, of, of taking this fight to the end and winning it and finally guaranteeing Ukrainian independence. But I can say that what Putin is thinking certainly is, as you said, scare parts of Ukrainian society into submission, but also place a huge weight on Zelensky's shoulders that he is responsible for what will happen. He's been doing that from the start, Russia and Putin. They have been doing that from the start, but obviously it was one thing to say that he would be responsible for a potential war and a potential invasion, which was already a lot of responsibility. And I thought for a while that Zelensky would not be able to, to bear the potential consequences of that. It's another thing when those numbers are already real and not just potential. And you said thousands, I think it's entirely conceivable that tens of thousands would die if Russia's policy becomes that, as it become already in some limited areas, but it could become more widespread. And the Russian army is an artillery-based army. They're not going to fight door to door. They will try to capture Zelensky in the government quarter in Kiev, but they're not fight door to door in, in Ukrainian cities. They will bomb them from the surroundings. Yeah, absolutely. You were in Kiev not long before the, the invasion began. What was your sense of the kind of attitude to Russia then? And do you detect any kind of change in attitude since the invasion? Have people become, I mean, my, my sense from people, from speaking to people in Ukraine and is that there was a kind of ambiguity towards Russia before this. Obviously, people were very, very resentful at what they'd done in Crimea and in the Donbass, but there was still a sense that Putin was not a madman and that he really wouldn't do this. The day before Russia invaded, I was speaking to a friend in Kiev and she was saying, oh no, there's not going to be a full-scale invasion. And I, I think they are. there is now a sense that they are up against a madman. And I wonder whether that kind of chimes in with, with your experience. I think that the change happened in, in 2014 with Crimea and the East, that people realized that they could not trust Putin and they realized that really they were fighting for their survival. They all become a lot more emotional now. And it will be become colored by personal circumstances. People will have relatives, will have family that have died, and that of course uh, will change everything. But it's been changing for a long time. I think this bravery that we see every day, and then many of us are surprised: how can people be so brave? And could we be as brave as these people? And usually, in my case, the answer is no. I couldn't. 
But one of the explanations that I've come up with is there has been an education in bravery for 10 years at least, perhaps longer. In a way, longer, very vivid one for 10 years. People have seen other people behave in a brave way. They've seen 40,000 people die in the East. And, and now they feel they are part of this movement. They feel they have to leave up to that image that others have left behind. And this swells like a snowball. The more you see other people being brave, the more you feel that you have to be as well, that you cannot be the exception in this large movement. That's what I saw in Kyiv, by the way. There was a, some curiosity on my part to see how prepared Ukraine was and, and they were. The normality of life was being combined with preparations for the war, as we can see now. But what fundamentally surprised me is after a couple of days talking to different people, it was obvious that Russia was not going to have a good time because people were absolutely decided. And he wasn't just a blaster. He was, you could see, he was genuine. One member of Advarkovna Rada told me she was, um, she already had a machine gun at home and she was ready to go to the trenches. And this was uh, two days before the war started. And you could see uh, the way she spoke that this was not just something for a Western audience that, that she was committed to this and everyone around in Kiev at those days were, and now sometimes I think where some of these people are and I'm uh, inspired by their bravery in a way, also a bit concerned that in time, as we talked already, the next few days, the next few weeks, those of us who know people in, in Ukraine may well start to receive the news that some of them have died in the fights. So it's all very tragic. And for the time being, the only thing we can say is just that this is extraordinary. And it's an example of political will, political bravery that we've only read about in books. Yeah, absolutely. There's obviously a lot of discussion in, in the West at the moment as to how precisely we can help Ukraine. Obviously, weapons deliveries from a whole range of countries have, have stepped up significantly and, and that's very welcome. Sweden has abandoned its traditional neutrality to ship weapons to Ukraine. Uh, Germany has, has dropped its policy of not shipping weapons to war zones to, to send weapons to Ukraine. But there are also calls for other more radical steps, like, for example, a no-fly zone over Ukraine enforced by NATO. What do you make of the proposals for a no-fly zone? And if you think that isn't feasible, are there any other ways we could help military in particular, which we're not currently doing? I've been quite frustrated, and not just in this case, but also the recent cases, Afghanistan and others, by the way we seem to have lost the ability to talk about strategic matters in a nuanced, uh, a complex way. It's how everything is binary, uh, no-fly zone or no-fly zone. Obviously, we could start by saying that even if in the end we don't try to, to impose a no-fly zone, it might be useful to keep it on the table as a possibility. And I'm surprised by we've also become very open about what we plan to do in a contest that is fundamentally strategic. It would certainly influence Putin's decisions to have to wonder whether in an extreme scenario, no fly zone would be imposed or not. But we've already made it very clear that you don't need sophisticated intelligence in Russia. That will never happen under any scenario. As we made it clear before the invasion that there would be no military reaction. I'm not convinced that's the way to do these things. And even in, if we're not able or willing to impose a no-fly zone all over Ukraine, there could have been and there could still be discussions about partial cautious limit use of that to protect 
nuclear power plants, for example, or to protect parts of Western Ukraine that are still not being bombed by Russia, not being occupied, and where trying to impose a no-fly zone would not disturb events already developing. But it would be actually a first move on our part. I think that would be worth discussing. Certainly supply of weapons is critical, should be faster. And I think in, in, in all our countries, we have an obligation to participate in the debate and alerts to how misguided it is to think that this is about Ukraine and not about all of us, particularly in Europe, and make sure that our politicians are under pressure. With what we've seen in the past few weeks is if there is pressure from public opinion and a clear opinion from public opinion, our politicians react. If there isn't, they don't. That's how democracies work. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks very much, Bruno Mashayesh, for joining us. Thank you. That has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave us a review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Ido Volk. Thanks for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.